Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody out there welcome to another episode of broadway breakdown i am matt Koplik. with me today is an alum of the pod my roommate my soul sister my drag inspiration my mother danny tickton Koplik. hello danny hello son how are you i'm so well uh today's been a very stressful day while while we got this recording ready to go uh you were working on a paper And I was working on another project, and then I had to get dinner started because I'm the one who keeps this household together. Of course. (laughs) No, you had a whole string where you were making dinner, and then I I think I've just been responsible for the last three, right? Yeah. Well, not including the one we ordered. Well, I paid for that. So you're. I know I didn't have to, but still, it happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not going to have that erasure in this household. I won't allow it. I'm grateful. Wonderful. So it's been been a minute, and. we also have some screaming toddlers in the room next door, so hopefully no one can hear them on the podcast. But not we'll see. my toddlers, neighbors' toddlers. Yes, Just I said in the, in the room next door. Yes, 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 yes. It's through the wall. The apartment next door. Whatever. I don't mm-hmm. care. I don't care. I anymore. just want to clarify that I don't have toddlers. Okay? No, you don't have toddlers. Mm-hmm. But we are talking about toddlers today. We are talking about an all-American classic that's both good and bad in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, it's sort of a mystery, and we're going to kind of get into it today, and it's had many iterations, and I think people both remember it inaccurately and accurately. I don't know. Nostalgia is a weird thing. What are we talking about today, Mother? We're talking about the movie versions of Annie. Yes, Annie the Musical. We're going to talk a little bit about the stage show as well, because it's going to give us some context for the movie versions. Primarily, we're going to be talking about the 1982 original movie, the 1999 adapted for TV movie. We're not going to talk so much about the 2014 remake. I have seen it. I did some reviewing of it this morning at work to sort of give myself some context. It's just so much a departure from the stage show that to the point that it's not even an adaptation. So we're mostly going to be talking about the other two since they're closer. Um, but, you know, we'll see where we get into. Um, so what is Annie in a nutshell? What is Annie? 
It is a show that was inspired by a comic strip that was running, I guess, during the Depression and then ran after. for a long time. Yeah, it yeah. started in 1924. Oh, sorry, I have dates here. Hold on, I wrote. I did research. Uh, created by Harold Gray, it debuted in 1924, and it lasted up until 2010. Uh, in that period, there were some times when they were just sort of uh, reprinting old strips, and then they would have a spell where they would do new ones. They had a whole bunch of different people at the helm because the creator, Harold Gray, died in 1968. So... Wow. <laughs> yeah. So in those 32, uh, 42 years, I guess, since he died, there were a couple of different guys who took over. Uh, but yes, the musical just of that. Yes. Whose intellectual property would that be then? The newer strips? Well, I guess it would be Harold Gray's because it's, it's... The new strips too? Well, it probably falls under the idea that he created. Maybe licensed or something. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure whoever continued with the strips signed a contract, you know, uh, maybe getting royalties from what they created, but they don't get uh, shares of the actual little orphan Annie. Uh, what's we're looking for? Proceeds. Yeah, legacy empire. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, f- foundation. But we digress. Yeah, we digress. Fun fact: uh, originally it was going to be a boy. It was going to be little orphan Otto, because <laughs> that just rolls off the tongue. Apparently they changed it because there was a poem in the 1800s called Little Orphan Annie and they decided they wanted to like make a reference to that. So, also, you know. in the time of the Depression, <clears throat> Otto isn't your basic all-American name. Well, to be fair, and, it, it, de- uh, it debuted before the Depression. It debuted okay. in the, right, in the yeah, mm-hmm. 1924. But, you know, during the Depression, it was a, it was a, uh, I'm sure it was a great comfort to many a child in America. Uh, yeah, it take Annie and the Depression is primarily from the stage show. That is where it is uh, hooked. But yes, so the stage show is based off of that. Do you remember the names of everyone who wrote the stage show? I know you remember one. Uh, Martin Charnin. Yes. Uh, he had the idea. He wrote the lyrics and he directed the original production and subsequent tours Charles Strauss did the music, and Thomas uh, Meehan did the book. That's exactly what I was going to say. Of course it was. <laughs> yes. You have you have this at your fingertips. Why am I even here? We have a little fun fact ourselves in regards to the stage show of Annie, do we not? I guess we do. Yeah. If you're referring to the fact that I saw this stage show, uh, probably right when it opened. Was it the fall of 77? April of 77. April of 77. So you were about to graduate. Yeah. yeah. I must have been on break because I took a friend with me, mm. I recall. Um, yeah, so I saw that. But, there, you know, I was predisposed to liking it then because my father worked with um, Martin Charnin, and they had a lifelong friendship after that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were sort of a rooting section. I don't yeah. think I had the critical eye back you, then. <laughs> you were not allowed to not like it. Right. Yes. My grandfather, your father, Richard Tickton, was a theatrical lawyer, entertainment lawyer, I guess, because he didn't just mm. deal with theater. Right. Uh, and Martin Charnin was a client slash friend. Uh, I met Martin, actually, at uh, Yom Kippur that Pop Sam and Fran mm-hmm. hosted. So we talked for a little bit. That was nice. Yeah. You didn't see when it came out in the 90s, right? When it was brought back to Broadway? No. He directed that version as well. Papa Zahn took Laura and me, my sister Laura, took us to see that version. I don't know if you remember. Nell Carter was Miss uh, Hannigan. Yeah. And we got to go backstage. I think that was the first time I... No, second time I ever went backstage at a show. First time was Beauty and the Beast. And I remember getting a couple of signatures, and that was really cool. 
And I remember there was a big hoopla about that production because they replaced the Annie out of town. But that's sort of something that's always happened with Annie. Annie has always kind of had uh, a lot of replacements going on behind the scenes. It's interchangeable. It's not like you have a marquee name for someone who's 11 years old. No, but it is a really tricky role (laughs) to get right. I had an episode recently about the musical Ruthless, which I know you've heard me talk about because I've blasted the bootleg all over this apartment. But I had Morgan Reynolds on to talk about it. And we talked about how it's a really tricky uh, role for a child actor because you need someone who's smart enough to get the humor but isn't so... I don't want to use the word precocious, but yeah, like polished enough that it feels false. And I feel like a lot of child actors, they know how to be polished. They don't know how to be um, intuitive and natural. Yeah. And Annie's such a heavy role. And just in terms of the fact that she's on stage so much, she carries a lot of weight. And, you know, you have the wrong kind of kid actor for the part and the whole thing goes off balance. I just have a fun fact that occurred to me, and since I'm dealing with insight right now, I just want to bring it up. A friend um, had gotten her new dog, a puppy, a chew toy, and the chew toy was lamb chop. Not a lamb chop, but the lamb chop. And I was reminded how Lamb Chop on Broadway was your first musical. Yes, indeed it was. Wait, it might not have been. It might have been my second, because Lamb Chop... We'll look into this in some other day because Lamb Chop was for a very short Broadway run in 94. And it's just a matter of whether it was before or after Beauty and the Beast opened because because we saw Beauty and the Beast pretty soon after it opened, I do recall. Yeah, I think it was Lamb Chop because I think it had that that sort of, it was a milestone, you know, one of those places where it's yeah. a marker. Yeah, I do. Re- I have vague memories of Lamb Chop. I mostly remember the ladies room because you took me with me during intermission. <laughs> You were a little. <laughs> yeah, I just remember being very crowded. And I was like, how does anyone go to the bathroom in here? And it's still that way. When you think of Annie, mm-hmm. what immediately comes to mind? Like, what pops into your head? It's sort of, despite all the red in it, kind of. <laughs> communism. You think of communism. It, no, you know, it's it's. There's a certain eh to it. You know, there mm-hmm. isn't anything that kind of grabs you. In each version, there is something to like. Mm-hmm. You pick out. You can respect the talent. You can respect um, uh, the, the choreography and the set design and all of that. But as a whole, you know, it's a, it's a very dated story. Sure. Keep in mind, so you're talking about the two movies that we yeah. recently watched. Yeah. So when I told you we were going to be watching these movies to talk about, I'm assuming your immediate your immediate thought was, ugh. No. No? No, I'm good with research. <laughs> uh, you're so silly. That's, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, Papasan also took me to see the last revival of Annie that was on Broadway when it opened at the palace, which Martin did not direct, we went to opening night of that, which was a lot of fun. And I will say that was sort of where I had the turning point with Annie. Cause for years when I was a kid, I loved it. And I specifically loved the 99 TV movie. I had the cast album or soundtrack, I should say for it and everything. And then, you know, I got into my Sondheim years as a teenager and I got a little more esoteric and snobby. And then I went to college where, you know, I had a professor who was super esoteric and snobby and really made us judgmental of a lot of different Can we not say writers. discriminating? 
you know, you learned, you developed, you know, well, guardrails I th- and well, taste parameters. These these things, uh, you kind of go in a, in a, it swings like a pendulum, I should say. You start off one way uh, whole, uh, wholeheartedly, and then you kind of shift gears the other way wholeheartedly. And then eventually, over time, you find a happy middle. I, as a teenager in high school, definitely got off a bit on liking the things that not everyone always liked. I said on this pod earlier, for a long time with the Tony Awards, I always would root for the show that like probably wasn't going to win, but like maybe had a shot. So the year of the producers, I was whole hog on full Monty. Uh, the year of Spring Awakening, it was all, I was team Grey Gardens. Uh, last Tony Awards, everyone was about the ferryman. I was like, what the constitution means to me. Things like that. So I would say after college, I definitely kind of owned the things I liked because I would think about it a lot and sort of decide for myself if I like it because I actually think it's good or if I like it despite the fact that it may not be the best. And when I saw the Annie revival, I was kind of thrown because I was watching a production that I did not necessarily think was good of a musical that I kind of realized was. The last time I had that reaction was the Guys and Dolls revival in 09 with Lauren Graham, which I went with your mother because I got her hooked on Gilmore Girls. And she was like, we need to go see our girl. We need to go see Lauren Graham. So we saw it and the revival was trash. It was a bad, bad production. I felt so bad for Lauren Graham. But I sat there and I went, I'm listening to the text being spoken right now. And I understand that this musical is extremely well written. It's just being given a bad production. And same thing with this last Annie. Uh... So I kind of had a turning point with it. And I think the stage show is actually very well structured. It's very intelligent in a lot of ways because the comic strip of Annie, from what I understand, because I was not alive in 1977, I'm famously very young, but (laughs) my mom just grimaced. (laughs) But you probably didn't have much knowledge of the comic strip by that point. It was passe by the time you were a kid, right? wasn't really well, you know it was it was kind of milk toast i mean you looked for a little bit more edge like doonesbury was was more peanuts was good for just you yeah know. well peanuts is classic and right. and peanuts actually is a really good example of something that ages well because the whole gist is that it's these children who kind of talk like adults and that never gets old whereas annie the comic strip of annie like she's very very golly gee whiz she talks in a very gung-ho all-american 1930s kind of attitude and the whole theme of the comic strip is very staunchly pro-american harold gray was a conservative republican and so when fdr became president he like kind of turned the annie comic strip into an anti-fdr anti-new deal strip and was all about how capitalism is amazing and that you know uh, the only thing distinguish, uh, the only thing distancing the poor and the rich are, uh, you know, hard work. And like, you work hard enough, you can get rich, and and things will be okay for you because that's the American dream. And as we know, that's kind of bullshit. And what's interesting is that the stage musical kind of does away with that in a lot of ways. It's a it's a still a very optimistic show, but they include FDR in a very positive portrayal. Annie meets him at the. Uh, White House with his cabinet and kind of inspires him to come up with a new deal and the musical is very pro new deal unlike the comic strip and they make light-hearted jokes about Oliver Daddy Warbucks being a Republican but it's not like 
you know, evil not, Republican. Not by current measures, right? No, exactly. <laughs> by current measures, he's he's a liberal. He's, he's a progressive. A dub, right? Exactly. <laughs> he makes jokes about, oh, what do Democrats eat? I'm having a Democrat over for dinner. Things like that. Uh, so yeah, it's when the musical came out, I was I was doing research on on the concept and the sort of journey of the stage musical because they had sort of a famous rough road to Broadway as well. They were at the Goodspeed Opera House out of town, and that was very rough because most of the reviews were kind of bad. And they replaced the main Annie with Andrea McCardle a week into the run, and they had a different actress for Miss Hannigan, and like half the songs were different. And Mike Nichols famously saw it. He liked it. So he invested money and he was like, I'm not going to direct it, but I will give you some notes every now and then. We're going to go to DC with a bigger budget and I'm going to throw this actress at you for Miss Hannigan. Her name's Dorothy Loudon and the rest is history with her. And they go to DC. It's a big hit. They do a couple more changes. They come to Broadway. It's, a, it's an even bigger hit. And I think it was Charles Strauss or Thomas Meehan said something shifted in the seventies because with Annie, they were just by the, when Annie opened Nixon had left and the country was sort of in a swing of optimism of like, Oh great. Maybe politics will go back to being honest again and the country can stop being lied to. Ha 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 ha. And so New York was sort of ready for a show like Annie. As a, they said, like, if they had opened two years earlier, New York probably would have rejected it. Which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. And watching clips of the stage show, what's interesting is Martin Charnin, as a director and all of his wisdom, cast very unique actors who were not really cutesy. So the show kind of knew that you thought coming in, oh, this is going to be a cutesy little family show. And then they have... Dorothy Loudon drinking booze out of like a hot water bottle, slapping the orphans with a flat paddle and hamming it up. Uh, you know, the orphans are not cute. They're kind of rough because they're, you know, streetwise. And the dancing that they do is not very clean and precocious. It's all very, you know, honest. And I think that sort of helped the show gain the momentum it did because people would come in thinking it was going to be this cutesy little polished show and then it ends up surpri- taking them by surprise of like being very self-aware and throwing you for a loop so when they do get to the cutesy stuff you're like well I li- it's earned now I like this part now you know yeah I like that way of thinking about it yeah but I think the because of Annie's reputation and because of how people continue to do it we don't really go to there anymore. Now we cast precocious kids. I was watching some clips of other productions, like when they did it at the Hollywood Bowl, and we're talking like pageant girls are playing the orphans, doing kick lines, you know, and pot de berets and uh, uh, beveling for the gods. And I'm like, this is not what they're... These are orphans in 1933. <laughs> they're not beveling. <laughs> orphans don't bevel. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. Annie is sold, the film rights are sold for over $9 million back in 1978, which is like, I think... What's the present value of that? uh, Let me look that up. I think it's something along the lines of like $30 something like that. Uh, I I have notes here, everybody. Equivalent of $39.2 million today. And it beat the record at the time. Because My Fair Lady was sold for $5.5 million to Warner wow. Brothers, and that was the record. And then Annie uh, went for 9.5. And I'm sure Hamilton has beaten that since, but that's a lot of money. 
But in doing so, the creatives lost all creative control of the movie. They lost any rights they had to have a say in the movie. And that led to some things. So let's get into the movie. Sure. When was the first time you saw this 1982 movie version of Annie? Did you see it in theaters? Oh, I must have. They didn't. I didn't see it any other way. I would have seen it that way. I mean, I don't know if anyone told you, but you had two kids since 1982. I don't know if maybe you watched it with one of them. Since, yes, not in. Okay, that was not. I'm saying not not in 1982. I'm saying I don't know if you missed the movie when it came out and then saw it with your children. Probably. That's probably what happened. That's what I'm thinking. I know that's definitely what happened with my father. There's no way that man saw Annie in movie theaters. Probably saw it on stage, not in movie theaters. He'd have as much patience for that as he does for Cheesecake Factory lines. <laughs> wow, we're just really going down memory lane. You know what also goes down memory lane? Annie. <laughs> so, this movie, Mama, like, I know I had it on VHS at one point. I can see the VHS. It was like orangey gold with, oh, I, with, with Eileen Quinn, who played Annie and Sandy on the cover. Mm-hmm. And I remember liking it as a kid, but maybe I was just impressionable. This is the first time I've watched it in maybe like 15, 20 years. It's a weird movie. It's very weird. It is. Well, in those days, you watched everything. But this, of course, had kids in it. And so it, it may have felt more accessible to you yeah. at that age. Well, so many people love this movie. They grew up with it. And I think with kids, you immediately have this chemical reaction to seeing kids in a movie do quote-unquote badass things so like when the orphans are breaking out of the orphanage and running up fifth avenue when annie's hanging from a bridge you're like wow i could do that too or when they're tumbling and it's sort of you know you're seeing kids do these dangerous things or these really cool things and you go like that's awesome kids can do anything it's why home alone is such a you know big classic because all the kids that grew up with it are you know thinking like, oh, I could be like Kevin McAllister. I could set up booby traps in my house and I'd put aftershave on my face. So I think with that, there's less distance for a lot of people on the movie, even if they've gotten older and more judgmental or have a more critical eye. They well, probably you have used, a... You, sorry, you used the word earlier with nostalgia. Probably people your age feel very nostalgic toward the movie. Yeah, <clears throat> but, but and I think that nostalgia can cloud some of their more critical perceptions of it. So that's where I'm at. Um, yeah. So for anyone who's living under a rock or for some reason, I know, if you're listening to this podcast, you have to know what Annie's about. And if you don't, then, you know, bully for you. I'll do a quick brief uh, summary. Annie's an 11 year old orphan living in New York City, 1933 during the Great Depression. Uh, she has a half of a locket and a note from her parents that says that says they're going to come back for her. She's had it since she was dropped off at the orphanage when she was a baby. Head of the orphanage, Miss Hannigan, uh, drinks and terrorizes the kids. Annie escapes, comes back. Uh, billionaire Oliver Warbucks decides for sort of good PR to have an orphan in his home for a week or two weeks, depending. And his personal secretary comes to the orphanage, picks up Annie. Annie wins over Oliver Warbucks. He wants to adopt her. She doesn't want to be adopted. She wants her real parents. So they put out a search for her parents with a $50,000 reward. Hannigan and her con artist brother Rooster and his girlfriend Lily St. Regis decide to play Annie's parents. They use Hannigan's files on her for information and to get the locket to match. It almost works, but eventually the jig is up. They are arrested. 
and he gets adopted by Warbucks. FDR shows up to say there's going to be a new deal and get America out of the Great Depression. And there are some dancing orphans and a dog named Sandy. And it was the orphans who saved her. Well, it's the orphans who save her in the movie. Oh. Not in the show. Oh. So so what I did was sort of a very basic plot line that kind of covers both the stage show and sort of both movie versions because both movie versions take liberties with the show. The 99 TV movie is definitely the most uh, respectful and most, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, true yeah true to the stage show it's not the exact what I was looking for but it's the one that's most true the 82 movie version takes a lot of liberties including some horny and racist liberties I should say um yeah so first fun fact about this movie is that it's directed by John Huston who, if you don't know, is an Oscar-winning director of such classic films as The African Queen, because Lord knows when you're thinking, let's get a big movie musical of Annie, let's get the guy who directed Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn in the African jungle. Let's get Angelica Houston's father. Let's get the uh, creepy patriarch in Chinatown who you know, is Faye Dunaway's father and fathers her child and has her, gives her the classic line, she's my daughter and my sister. Sister and my daughter. Sister, daughter, sister, daughter. Um, yeah, this movie, guys, I'm kind of at a loss. If you like it, please write in. Tell me what you have to say. I want to know why you like it. Um, it's like both really elaborate and also kind of grungy looking at the same time. Maybe they were trying to go for the feel of the Great Depression, but I don't know. It more just sort of looks like stoic. It's shot really weirdly as well. Um, weird angles and, and a lot of dead space on, on fr- in the frame when people are dancing. It's, it's odd. And a, and a weird sexual energy coming from everyone. Everyone is kind of humping the camera. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, not maybe the kids, I hope, but, you know. Do you not recall, in the classic number, you're never fully dressed without a smile, the orphans are dancing in the orphanage, and there's that one girl who's bouncing her hips around, throwing her pelvis at the screen. Yes, yes. And a lot of, like, bare-legged kids, like, running around in their underwear, and, and I'm not saying, like, that's sexual necessarily, but they do so in a manner that like it's John Houston's trying to say like these kids are not so innocent and that is a, definitely a theme that Martin Charnin did with the stage show but it was more like these kids are streetwise and John Houston's like these kids have urges It was odd. And then there was that one six-year-old who I'm convinced in Hard Knock Life had coke on her face. <laughs> Listen, go on YouTube. It's the Hard Knock Life, 1982 Annie. There's a girl who's like standing on the stairwell sleeping. She's sleeping standing up. And there's a white substance on her nose and her upper lip. And maybe it's just supposed to be chalk or dust or something. It looks like coke nose. Granted, Clearly, it's not supposed to be Coke Nose because she's sleeping, and Coke does the opposite of that. Here's my response. What? Got milk? 
What? It couldn't have been a milk mustache? Those aren't real. <laughs> they are. I've seen them. You've seen milk mustaches? Yeah. I've only seen them in the ads, and those are clearly makeup. It's okay. like silly putty they put on top of them okay. lips. Okay. That's, no. I was just being cheeky. You? Cheeky? Never. I, yeah, yeah. I will say one thing for this movie that's a big positive. It's got a stellar cast. It's got really good people. Whether they're all good in it is another question. Carol Burnett's definitely, I think she has the right idea for the role. She definitely plays up the drunkenness of it, although it's more sort of like she's constantly got a hangover. And she does a lot of bits in the song Little Girls where she sings about how much she hates her life. First of all, she's drinking water out of a flower vase. Do you remember that? Disgusting. Yeah. Is the implication that there's gin in there? Or... Yeah, because she the bathtub bathtub gin. Yeah. But when we talk about bathtub gin, I thought it meant like you brew gin in the bathtub. Yeah, not like, fuck. not that you just pour gin into your bathtub well, water. Well, maybe she's getting the water out of there. I don't know. Or maybe she was too drunk to know. It was, it was murky though, wasn't it? That water was murky. Maybe. I, it could have been just that she was going absolutely insane and breaking down so she was like i'll turn the water on in my bathtub and pour gin in it and i'll drink the water from there it's like okay meanwhile she's like very undressed and also very horny she's making out with her radio because it's a soap opera and yeah but she does she does all these little bits remember she goes with all the nuts and the squirrels (laughs) and she doesn't even end on a big note she's like little 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 and she's got a weird sexual energy with tim curry who plays her brother rooster it's like very incestuous fun fact that part was originally offered to steve martin really he turned it down because bernadette peters was cast as lily saint regis by then and they were in the middle of breaking up and he Uh thought that would be very painful to which i say tough it out steve martin you would have been so good i mean tim curry's very good as well and he has that sort of sinister edge to him so he's both fun to watch and dangerous but it definitely makes like the energy between him and carol burnett odd they could have given him a better speech coach though oh yeah well because you are you do you mean to imply that tim curry's brooklyn accent is not uh realistic (laughs) it's more brit than brooke brit more brit than brooke you know mom the same could be said of Albert Finney as Daddy Warbucks. Indeed. Although they... It came across just as patrician with him. You know, FDR speaks sort of... Why do I smell wet dog? <laughs> Hi, there's something about a smile. Hang into the bathroom. She's not a boy. Orphans are boys. I want a boy. Leaping lizards. Maybe he wasn't right for the part. You know, in a weird way, he kind of was. Like, it. I bought him a lot more in the first half as, like, the gruff Daddy Warbucks, or Oliver Warbucks, I should say, when he's not Daddy yet. He's not Daddy yet. I bought him more as Oliver Warbucks in the first half when he has no idea what to do with this child and just is so kind of straight-laced businessman gruff. I bought him less when he had to start a sort of start having his heart melt and connect with her i got absolutely no chemistry with him and eileen quinn he was the same man from beginning to end and maybe there was meant to be some sort of comedic 
want to say relief because it's supposed to be a comedic movie. It's a dark movie, but they are trying to make it comedic. I guess there's supposed to be some comedy there of him treating her like he would treat a business associate, and she's this little 10-year-old girl. But I don't know. It was just weird. It was, it was it was a very weird performance. Well, it would be interesting. I don't know if he has any kind of autobiography or whatever, but um, there are a lot of actors who don't like to play against children. Yeah. He didn't have to do the movie, though. I don't no, think he, he was... didn't, but you never know. No. Paycheck. Yeah. It's, I'm sure it was a big paycheck. It was a very expensive movie to make, but... And he also has weird career choices. He did Murder on the Orient Express with the huge mustache as Poirot. Uh, you wouldn't know it now, but he used to be kind of a bit of a snack back in the 60s. Hmm. Tom Jones, two for the road. He was a handsome man. Very, yeah. very cute in like a both boyish and gruff British way. So what you're saying is he basically overplayed the the, the gruff, harsh, cold-hearted uh, Warbucks throughout. Like he, he, he the there the melt wasn't there enough. Yeah, I guess, yeah. When I say that, well, when I say that I liked him, rather I bought him in the first half. It's not necessarily to say that I think that his performance was good in the first half. He still was doing very weird things, like making big, bold Johnny Depp style choices, but. It was at least like in, I was like, okay, I can sort of see what they're going for. I just don't think it succeeds. I am now conducting a coast to coast nationwide search for Annie's parents. Drop page. Warbucks continue. The person who I think succeeds the most in the movie is Anne Ranking as Grace. And she's not even really right for the role necessarily. She's a little too, her. For, she's not the right voice type, first of all. Because Grace is a soprano, as we will later learn. Uh, and Anne Ranking is, was infamously not a soprano. But she had a great deal of warmth to her and really dropped in earnestness. Uh, you know, she did a great job in all that jazz. She does a great job here. She dances like a mother. And yeah, so I mean, she has that one big number, We Got Annie, where they still kind of have her dance in a sexual way. Mm-hmm. To the point where it's like weird that a little girl's the idea of adopting a little girl has gotten her so excited that she's dancing like she's in a Fosse show, you know. These are the things you got to think about as a choreographer. This woman is excited at the prospect of having an orphan in her home forever, so maybe don't have her dance with her pelvis. Just saying. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah. There was a lot of that the entire time. She looks great in that yellow dress. They also... The stage show, I don't think, really has much of a romance between Oliver Warbucks and Grace. I think it's more sort of implied towards the end, but it's not overt. This version gets them hooking up, right? And he, has, he it's the classic, She her hair is up the entire time, and then she starts letting it down, and he's like, Grace, I really like your hair that way. It was interesting. The one thing that he did well, I think, was have that eureka moment that this is an attractive woman and I spend so much time with her and I'm really quite fond of her. Yeah. I think he, you can he you can register that he registered that. Sure. The 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 scene with them on the patio after they go to the movies and she's in the yellow dress right before we got Annie, which is not in the stage show. It was added for the movie. It it is a nice scene between them. But I just I always cringe at the now she's let her hair down and I see her as a sexual object now. She's a woman. 
wow. But, you know, it was 1982. 16 Candles was just around the corner, and that has date rape. So, like, it's not as if we were in a great place with how to portray women on screen. So, they, they get a lot of passes just on, like, where cinema was at. And many good scouts wing, Bing is the king I find. Mark has got Jeff and Eleanor FDR. We got Annie. We got Annie. We've got Annie. You know what they don't get a pass with, though? What? <laughs> Two super racist characters. Yes, terrible. Punjab and the Asp. It was appropriation, but not whatever. No, it's not appropriation because, well, because they're not taking the culture and having white characters soak it up. Like, it'd be one thing if Anne Rankin came out with a turban and she was like mm, i just love the way it, way it makes my hair feel like started doing uh moves reminiscent of india or like bollywood that would be like cultural appropriation this is just flat out racist you know do you know what i mean i do i do i just you know the, the jeffrey holder part punjab was was ridiculous very ridiculous ridiculous and again punjab and the asp are characters that are in the comic strip and they're racist there too. Wow. I mean, first of all, again, the comic strip, the comic strip does its its darndest to sort of fight racism during its era. You know, Annie sort of for a, for a comic strip that's supposed to be anti-union, Annie sort of starts a lot of unions. <laughs> and it's but their idea of being anti-racist is like uh, a black kid wants to join her union and she's like, "Sure you can. You're an American, aren't you?" You can help us shove coal, and that's and she's like, and you it's like you helped us find the best coal mine, Brandon, whatever his name is. You get to be manager, and he's like, wow, golly gee, manager. It's just so, and the dialect they give a lot of the black characters in that comic of Annie is like very Song of the South, mm. very Butterfly McQueen. Yeah, oof. yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's, not, it's sort of like you know, I see, I understand, like time period and and that's all relative but also like you could have done a little bit better and on top of that punjab and the asp who are supposed to be oliver warbucks is like bodyguards punjab who's from india the asp who is from supposedly china they never really specify in the comic or the movie and the asp from what i remember in the movie doesn't speak at all he just does a lot of karate and Ooh, and we got Annie. He and Punjab have their own little like dance solo towards the end, and they have Jeffrey Holder as Punjab doing like some weird mystical arm movements, and they turn the music into a Bollywood style sound. Then the asp goes, and they literally play like the um, chopstick kind of sound, like do 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 do, and he's doing like weird head rolls and karate moves, and it just happens, and you go, oh my god. They thought that this was cute. It just, uh Those characters aren't in the stage show because Martin Charnin, listen, I'm not going to praise him this entire episode because I have some issues with him as a creative. One of the smartest things he and Thomas Behan did were cut those characters from the stage show because they are racist as fuck. 
a, just a couple of last notes I want to make on 1982 before we move sure. along. Uh, they cut tomorrow, or rather say they moved tomorrow. So now it opens the movie over the opening credits. This is apparently because John Huston, the director, and Ray Stark, the producer, thought the song was really corny. So they moved it to the opening credits because they just couldn't bring themselves to put it in an actual scene. And then Annie sings it with the president at some point. They added a bunch of songs that do nothing. Dumb Dog, Stupid, uh, Sign, which is where Oliver Warbucks comes over to get Miss Hannigan to sign the adoption papers. And she tries to seduce him and then ends up in the bathtub with her gin. And she's in her underwear the entire time. It's a stupid song. Nothing's accomplished. Uh, apparently it was written on the spot because Carol Burnett and Albert Finney said, we want a song together. So Martin Tarn and Charles Strauss were like, here. And they were like, great. They're like, it's our first draft. And they went, fantastic. Um, yeah. And that's really, that's the last couple things I wanted to say. And then just the the kidnapping plot with Rooster and Annie, they, they get away with it for a minute. And Annie almost dies. And the orphans tell Warbucks that Annie was kidnapped. Uh, she's on a bridge, almost dead. Punjab unravels his turban to turn into a rope, which is, again, woof. Uh, that is also sort of in theme with Hanging the... from an autocopter. Yes! Which you've never seen before. It's... The... The... The grandiosity that this movie presents is astounding. In a way that's like... Oh, and then... The movie ends with them singing I Don't Need Anything But You in a big fireworks display because the movie takes place during the summer over July 4th, whereas the stage show and the 99 movie, it's during Christmas, which is a better time for the story to take place. Together and last, together forever, we're tying a knot. Yeah, uh, the 1982 movie, it was the 10th highest grossing film of the year, grossing $57 million, which is just under $200 million today domestic, like 180 But it lost money because it cost so much money to make. Uh, yeah, which leads us to the 1999 TV ABC Disney film version of Annie. I don't think you've ever watched this version before. Oh, I can't remember. I watched it a bunch because when it came on, it was a huge deal. It was part of the wonderful world of Disney TV anthology that ABC started doing in 1997. They famously started it with Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston. And then it was sort of, I think it was like once a month or every two months, maybe on a Sunday night, they would air an original movie of some sort. But Annie, I remember coming out and that was really a big deal. And I got the VHS for it because I also got the VHS for Cinderella. And I watched those both a lot. And then I got the soundtrack for Annie because there there's still famously no soundtrack available for Cinderella. And I listened to that a lot. But I don't think I ever made anyone in the house watch it with me. Maybe like a babysitter or two. But I never really, I don't think I ever watched it with you. Definitely never watched it with dad. Uh, definitely never watched it with Laura. <laughs> My sister Laura. No, 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 no. We, she and I would watch Clueless together. Uh, sometimes Muppet Treasure Island, but mostly, mostly teen movies, never Annie. So this was, so I think this was probably your first viewing of it. Could have been. How did you feel about it? I actually liked it better than the earlier version. Um, first of all, I thought, uh, what's the girl's name again? Alicia Morton. Alicia Morton had stage pipes. Yes. 
she had stage pipes, whereas the other was a smaller, thinner voice that couldn't really handle um, the range, I guess. But this girl was very good and knew how to project. She felt more natural mm-hmm. in the role. Um, and, you know, some of the casting was interesting. They didn't have Punjab in this one, did they? No, because they, it's true to the stage show, which right. cut him and the asp. Yeah. Again, very wisely. Gratuitous. And then unless they needed someone tall to hang from the helicopter, you know. Well, they, they cut that whole helicopter bit. Yeah, the 99 version, there is no Punjab. There is no the asp. Uh, she, there is no bridge that she dangles from. And yes, Alicia Morton, which is a name I will never forget. It'll stay in my brain forever because she was very important to me for a solid year. And her vocals are great. Betcha he reads. Betcha she sews. Maybe she's made me a closet of clothes. Maybe they're strict, as straight as a line. Don't really care as long as they're mine. Eileen Quinn as Annie in the 1982 one, she is sort of... Um shortchanged a bit because with Anne Ranking not being a soprano, a lot of the mm. songs she sings with Eileen Quinn, the the keys have to be altered for her range, which means Eileen Quinn thus has to sing in a lower register. And in the 99 version, we have Audra McDonald, the greatest soprano of all time, or rather to say the greatest living soprano. So we have the original keys, which means Alicia Morton gets to sing in her big, brassy, belty Broadway glory and get, even goes up a couple of times where Andrea McArdle did not. She, there's a time where she hits an F and I'm like, ooh, this girl could be Evita. <laughs> it's great. And they keep Tomorrow. Tomorrow still happens in the scene. And did you think it was too schmaltzy in the, in the no, movie? No, I thought, you know, you're in the Depression. It's, it's a nice pepper-upper, right? It's, yeah. Uh, optimistic, which with all the negative stuff that everybody's going through, is is you know in counterpoint yeah it's a nice remedy the movie's very smart the 99 movie's very smart because they do sort of frame it in a very sad way that you know she's outside it's snowing she's just stole an uh an ear of corn to eat and she doesn't even get to eat it and she's sort of sitting in an alleyway with this dog and it starts off very light so it doesn't feel like a gung-ho gee whiz kind of song it feels very earned i like it a lot mm-hmm. and she's very sweet alicia morton uh she's not quite as tough as annie as i gather andrew mccardle probably was and even eileen quinn in the 82 one for reference she starts off very tough you know she's always threatening to beat up the other orphans for yelling at molly and uh, she runs from the police she runs from the popo but when she gets to the warbucks mansion she is very much like an earnest little sweet kid but what I also like is that the musical and the 99 version, they don't frame her as like this once in a lifetime ray of sunshine, like inspires everyone kind of a person. She just connects with all of her war books. Like they, they just have a connection. Whereas the 82 movie, it's like this kid is so sensational. Everyone's in love with her and she doesn't do anything. Well, you know, maybe it was consistent with the Bert Healy show. You know, that was so retro and that uh, that one felt maybe a little bit more retro. I mean, the way Annie looked and mm-hmm. stuff. And that this one definitely felt in in some subliminal way a little bit more modern. Yeah, they had a little bit of a modern touch to it. Part of that, you, can, you sort of could see that with the casting as well. Um, the racial diversity in this Annie while maybe not the most of all time was still 
probably the most is that well probably not the most racially diverse now oh. well probably well probably not the most racially diverse annie now was definitely the most racially diverse at the time annie famously has had issues with race the original stage production n- did not cast any people of color as far as i'm aware uh they wanted to keep it historically accurate and orphanages in the 30s were segregated so there were no orphans of color and i think that was sort of to their detriment at the time and then the 82 version you know we have two characters for representation and they are not the best representation and then the 90s revival with nell carter there was a little bit you have nell carter and i think a couple of the orphans were not white but i remember i was looking up on it there was some controversy with that one as well because they were running a tv ad for that revival and they were using stock footage from the original production and that hannigan was white they had like marshall lewis who was a white actress in the stock footage for the commercial and now carter's like you're using my name you're selling my name for tickets but you're not showing my face in the commercials that is like that is racist and like no it's just the footage we had she's like shoot new footage use me you're selling my name you're not showing me uh which she has a point. I just want to go back to something because it took me all this time to remember the name of the show. So Annie on stage was uh, intentionally not multi-ethnically cast yes. and blah, blah. Um, but Martin made up for it because he created the first. And it took me a long time to remember that name. What's that the was first? about Jackie Robinson. Oh, right. Right, 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 right. I mean... It wasn't significant. I was making a joke. Sure. But... Because, I mean, the first, for all the people that are in it that are real, it's amazing to think about because that show just doesn't exist. No need to pick up any toys. The kids will never believe this. No finger will you lift, my dear. We have one more request. Please put us to the Both, both versions of Annie have great casts. I would argue the 99 one has a cast that's better suited for their roles and follow through a bit better. Kathy Bates doesn't really play a kooky Hannigan, which I wish she did. I like the Hannigan she plays. She's not a drunk because this was televised on primetime and it was Disney, so they weren't going to have a drunk villain. And she wasn't overly sexual. She was more sort of a tough matriarch she was actually sadder than she was mean yeah she played her much more like a human being and well carol burnett is caricature i mean that's sure that's what she does i mean i would say kathy bates is hannigan like again she i she sort of got evil towards the end but for the first hour you're like this woman's not very evil you know she like yes she's 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 not great with the orphans she's she's constantly making them clean and whatnot but she's never violent with them she's not terrifying yeah you know she's more of a heart she's more of a hard ass let's put it that way and she turns evil at the end i don't think she was as much evil as she was corrupted maybe maybe so like something in annie that they've cut out since then and they even make a reference to it in the 99 one is that hannigan does hit the kids and oh. or, or at least that's what it's supposed to be the or, the first time we hear i love you miss hannigan is when annie first tries to escape the first time 
she she fails the first time she succeeds the second and the first time she uh tries and fails hannigan catches her has her bend over has a very has a paddle like a big flat paddle and smacks her on the butt with it a couple of times and then she says what do you say and then annie says through gritted teeth i love you miss hannigan um sort of like a very like please thank you sir may i have another kind of thing and it's funny in a twisted way because it's in hannigan's eyes by doing this it's sort of making them understand like this punishment's for your own good don't you understand by being a child by definition you are disgusting and it's my job to make you not disgusting and i think that's sort of what made dorothy loudon such a great heel in the role was she was so earnest in her conviction that like these children are monsters and they're out to get me so of course i drink wouldn't you and like of course i make them clean if i don't make them clean they're gonna get me but you know we also commented that alcohol didn't show its face for a really long time in the 1999 version not until the not until this right. later half yeah whereas it was omnipresent in the first one yes well i think that has to do with the fact that it was a disney produced tv movie yes comparison. yes and when they when alcohol does show up on screen it's you know a celebratory shot although easy street they do end it in a pub which i think is fun i thought someone else had a bottle like not that again or rooster somebody had a bottle no warbucks mentions alcohol because when annie shows up and they say oh first i want to say the musical arrangements in the 99 version they slap they are so good they are the best arrangements of that score ever that ever will exist it's just so good. And you know, she also fills up the space in the house. Do you know what I mean? She's yeah. got the voice that fills up the space. She does. And the Warbucks mansion in the TV movie, even though it's just basically one set, and it's clearly not as big as the mansion in the 82 one, it looks more luxurious and more, and more expensive, even though the TV movie obviously had like a fifth of the budget. It also didn't feel completely lifeless. Where it was colorful, it yeah. Was. The other, and remember, I said last night that I thought that the second version had a slightly more cartoony feel, excepting Carol Burnett, who I think yeah. was, you know, well, the '99 but... version, I think it was the colors. The colors were brighter and bolder, yeah. which, and because there was sort of a fakeness to the whole set, you knew it wasn't a New York City street. You I could tell it was a backlot. No, no, what I'm saying is that. So I've often said movie musicals in general are really difficult to pull off, especially now because we have entered this realm of like realism. Everything needs to be needs to look real and musicals can exist in that world. Every time people have tried, it fails miserably. You need a sort of slightly heightened sense of reality to make it work because in musicals, everything has to be heightened enough that the singing makes sense, the emotions, everything the stakes and so by having this version of annie take place in a slightly unrealistic world where it's like it's everything's realistic enough that you buy it you buy the you know what they're feeling is real but you can tell that the street she's on is not actually a new york city street you can tell it's a movie studio lot and that's not a bad thing because it's a good thing yeah because it gives it it gives it that slightly heightened sense of reality it's it's a heightened version of New York in the 1930s. And it also grounds you to the to the comic strip a little bit. When you're trying to be too on on location e, mm-hmm. it kind of loses some of the um I don't know how to 
how I'm thinking about it, but it 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 loses something when you're when you're outside in New York City where it's where it, yeah know, it's done. well you look at La La Land, which is perhaps the most romantically photographed version of L.A. that you'll ever see, because L.A. is notoriously not a pretty town, mm. and it works because it's an L.A. that doesn't really exist, right, right, and so. The, so the musical numbers work. They they feel both real and earned in the world that the movie has set for itself. And that's what this version of Annie does, I, I think, agree. very well. I agree. Um, but when she shows up at the house, th- this is this is all coming back to the booze thing. When she come, shows up at the house and they do, I think I'm going to like it here, which slaps so hard. And then Warbuck shows up, played by Victor Garber. And ooh boy. Ooh boy. Could Victor Garber be called daddy? Um, I push you out of the way, but I understand he's not interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know he's got a man in his life, so that's fine. But oh, Victor, beautiful Garber. voice too, really beautiful. Yeah, he well, he's a Broadway dude. He was in the original Sweeney Todd. He yeah. sang Joanna, and he was in the Godspell movie as Jesus. He used to have a big head of hair, which of course they shaved for this. He's also very sexy in the Cinderella movie. He's just, and he's sexy and legally blonde. He's just sexy. He's Victor Garber. He he shows up and he like all versions of Annie. He shows up when Annie shows up and he doesn't know what to do with her because he's not a kid guy. It's clearly a promotional stunt to have his orphan stay the week with him. Which, by the way, is a very cruel stunt. It is terrible take this kid who's known nothing but cold mush and scrubbing floors give her the lap of luxury for a week and then send her back on her way which i don't know if the show is ever aware that that's kind of a gross thing to do but i don't think so i think it was a fantasy you know maybe that's what what the original the comic book at least yeah i mean it's something that i could imagine actually happening in 1933 i could imagine a billionaire for promotional purposes like inviting an orphan into his home and then sending her back i could imagine that happening maybe albert finney was too old for that role it was hard for them to connect he was just living in a different movie as far as i'm aware everyone was in a different movie everyone in the 99 one is in the same movie and i appreciate that yeah um but he says you know for trying to think something to do he says to Annie, I'll bring you to my club for cigars and scotch. And that alone is ridiculous. Which, and I love right. it. And then I love Archer McDonald's responses. Your club's men only, sir. And I'm like, that's because that was the problem in the plan. That yeah. was the problem. Not the cigarettes and the booze. Cigars yes. and the booze. And so then his response is, okay, then we'll have brandy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, those are the kind of jokes that I think are in the that's stage like show, right too. right out of my big fat Greek, Greek wedding. Greek wedding, yeah. Uh, oh, it's the... Uh, she doesn't eat uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Meat Ian, meat. Ian doesn't, Ian doesn't eat meat. He's a vegetarian. That's okay. I make lamb. <laughs> don't eat no meat. <laughs> My big fat Greek wedding. We should watch that sometime. I know. Maybe good. something they do in the 99 version that i love and they didn't do it in the 82 version i don't know why there is a song and annie it's called nyc it's about what new york city basically like the thing that makes warbucks first fall for annie it's like the seed that's planted is he takes her out to see the city to go to the movies 
in the 82 movie version they're like great we're just gonna go straight to the movies they're gonna get into his car and they're gonna go to radio city musical which by the way they go see camille because the thing you want to take a 10 year old to see is camille where greta garbo plays a courtesan who dies of consumption take the kid fun for the whole family also after we watched it i told you this when i tell our listeners Annie takes place in 1933. Camille didn't come out till 1936. Booyah. Also in the song, Let's Go to the Movies, they make a reference to Shirley Temple. Shirley Temple didn't become a movie star till 1934. Booyah. Booyah. <laughs> You've just been pwned. But the whole point is that of the song isn't so much that she's going to a movie. It's that Annie has lived in New York City her whole life and she's never seen the city because she's been cooped up all the time. And every time she escapes, it's to see it's to try to find her parents. So she's not even looking around the sites. She's looking for her parents. So the 82 one doesn't understand that. And they're like, oh, well, the appeal is going to see a movie. The 99 version is like the appeal is seeing the city. And by having her see the city, Warbuck sees the city through her eyes and falls in love with her. By seeing the, the wonder as she experiences all what anew. What you saw was she was holding his hand, mm-hmm. which she might have initiated, but when he had to pick her up when she was sleeping mm-hmm. and take her home, that to me was the moment. Oh, you cried. Oh, stop. <laughs> you, let's, let's call it what it is. You cried. Maybe. <laughs> you cried a little bit at the end of the 82 one when she was being kidnapped and they were singing the maybe reprise, but that's like, you know. Wait a minute. I nipped it in the bud because I could feel it You could coming. feel it coming on. You cried a couple. the back cou- of my nose, my eyes. You know? But you cried a couple of times in the 99 one. The first one was when uh, they come home from their night out and she's asleep in the in the car and he picks her up. Yeah. But there are a couple of times when they're going around the town. For, she's grabbing his hand all throughout New York City during NYC, but it's not a kind of, I want you to fall in love with me kind of way. She's just, she's, she wants to see things and he's moving too slowly. So she grabs his hand. She's like, come on. And when they're outside of a toy store and she can't see through the window, he picks her up and puts her on his, on his shoulder. It's sweet things. But then there are also humorous things. Like they go get their shoe shined and Annie decides to shine the shoes of the shoe shine boy. They get in a snowball fight and Warbucks misses and hits somebody. And so they have to run. It's like, it's a night out and it's cute. And on top of all of that, very familial. Very familial. And on top of all of that, we have the cameo of all cameos when they go see a Broadway show and who plays the star to be, but Andrea fucking mccardle yes singing up a storm she did you didn't realize it was andrea for a second it took me a minute i mean i knew she was in it because i had seen the credits Mm -hmm. but i really wasn't paying attention then all of a sudden it's like boom you were wrapped up in the story oh i guess you were wrapped up in the emotions i I like the singing actually so i was listening to that well the the arrangements are amazing victor garber and audra mcdonald harmonizing yes please yes god and then Alicia Morton joins them at the end for three-part harmony. And yes. Alicia Morton takes the alto line. And it's great. Yeah, it was wild. It's fantastic. The arrangements in this movie slap. It's so good. It was good. Well, Because I, I remembered loving the 99 one. But after we watched the 82 one, I was like, is the 99 one going to hold up? Because I listened to the 99 one a lot. And the arrangements always hold up. But I'm like, I don't want this movie to not be as good as I remembered it. And it was actually kind of better. It's definitely sweeter than the stage show. They take out they take out all sense of politics in the 99 one. The stage show has politics sort of looming around and makes mm. jokes about it. You know, oh, what did Democrats eat? And, you know, the 82 one politics is mostly out. They, they Annie still visits the president. And then there's also a Bolshevik who tries to bomb Warbucks' mansion. And it's handled, it's handled so cavalierly. Yeah. But it's a reference to the fact that Warbucks made his money 
according to the comic books, Warbucks made his money selling weapons during World War One, which is obviously like where the name comes from. Warbucks. Mm-hmm. He made his bucks from the war. Mm-hmm. But the movie, the eighty-two movie, like it's so. They have Anne Ranking say the line like, "The Bolsheviks don't want anyone to know that capitalism works, and Warbucks is living proof that it does." <laughs> and I'm like, "You're in the middle of the Great Depression. Clearly, it doesn't work. This keeps happening." Yeah, right. We keep we have the depression. We have a re- we've had two recessions since the 21st century started. Like, clearly, capitalism is flawed, and maybe the Bolsheviks are onto something. I don't know. We've been watching The Americans, and I've been yeah, I've been getting corrupted by Carrie Russell. also like the choreography in the 99 one it's a little more the whole thing is a little more theatrical but the choreography like i don't know it's maybe less like over the top but it just is cleaner it's cleaner and less gaudy yeah the 82 one everything is just on crack everyone is tumbling everyone is breaking bones like be our guest right it's a little bit like be our guest kind of but like even be our guest knows when to say when i guess yeah or at least I should say the 91 Be Our Guest knew when to say when. The Emma Watson remake did not, mm. which Audra is in, by the way. And those assholes get Audra McDonald in their movie. And they have her sing for about 35 seconds at the beginning and 35 seconds at the end. And I say that is a hate crime that is homophobic. <laughs> if they really, and they were like talking about how this new Beauty and the Beast was gay friendly. I'm like, you want it to be gay friendly? You have Audra McDonald push Emma Thompson off the goddamn screen to say, this is my moment, bitch, and have Audra sing Beauty and the Beast. That is gay rights, honey. (laughs) But we digress. Do we, though? (laughs) Because Audra's in Annie as well. So it's a natural transition. Good theme. Good good thread. Andrew McArdle is the star of E. My my final, final thoughts on her. She was very good. I, I, I was I was fascinated by her, and I was like, this is sort of random, you know, and then all of a sudden the light bulb went mm-hmm. off and say, oh, here, this is her cameo. This yeah. is her special appearance. Well, it's interesting that Solo has become a very famous Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it was that famous at the time, so it's actually really uh, smart of them to have included it. But since then, the star to be in NYC has been something because the original star to be in the Broadway production was Laurie Beachman, who went on to become the narrator in Joseph, which Papasan's wife, Fran, famously cast. It's too confusing for me. Well, the bottom line is that our family has fingers in all of theatrical history. That's what we're saying here, honey. Okay, fine. And then when they did the revival in the 90s, Sutton Foster played the star to be. And then Andrew McArdle did the TV movie. So, like, that solo sort of become, like, a coveted solo. Nice. Because you could become Laurie Beachman, you could become Sutton Foster and Andrew McArdle. Uh, but, yeah, she sounds great. Kristen Chenoweth, in a small role. she just come off a Tony win. She, Kristen Chenoweth, Alan Cumming, and Kathy Bates doing Easy Street is the only thing that can rival Carol Burnett, Tim Curry, yeah. and Bernadette Peters doing Easy Street. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, why did why did they switch out um, Lily St. Regis and Miss Hannigan in the in the um, effort to adopt Annie? Oh, in the con where they had Hannigan. Yeah, play. but they didn't in the other. Yeah, so it's never been Hannigan before. That was that's the only change that kind of confused me. I don't necessarily know why they did it, 
maybe it was to give Hannigan more screen time Mm -hmm. because in the show she's complicit but she doesn't pose as the as the mom and she gets arrested in the 82 movie she's still complicit but then has a change of heart all of a sudden yeah it's weird too very weird and unearned yeah because basically what it is is like they're on their way she knows they're gonna kill her and then when annie escapes and rooster says i'm gonna kill you she's like wow he's really gonna kill her i gotta stop this i was like what did you think was gonna happen before all of this (laughs) where where hannigan turns super evil in the 99 one is a she replaces Lily in the con, but also when it's made clear that Annie's going to get killed, she has no qualms with it. She's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Anything to get my 25 grand. Um, yeah, I don't know why. Maybe I guess to give Kathy Bates more screen time towards the end. Um, the whole con in the TV movie, it's mostly fine. It's really the Hannigan switch is the only thing that I don't get, but it offers us a great scene with Kristen Chenoweth and all the orphans playing poker, which I think is very funny. Mm-hmm. I, also like, I also like the term that she they already sort of show that she's going to be the loose lips that sink the ship because when they first try to beat Annie's parents for Hannigan to con her, Christian Chenoweth slips up. She goes, she was our perfect little boy. I mean, girl, yes. it's just so hard to tell when they don't have hair. <laughs> so funny. And then, and then look to rooster for, yes, that's right. Yeah. Right? yeah it's no like, right. Other way to tell. Like, yes. And me here, rooster, we are trying to do something. And then when the orphans get her to spill about the plan, and they go, well, what makes you think they're going to come back for you? She goes, because I'm Rooster's girl. I love, I've, I memorized the line. He never leave me, uh, he never leave me to take the fall and spend three months, months on Rika's Island. Again. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And it tells you all you need to know because, yes, she, uh, like, it's so, uh, it, it justifies her ratting them out because it's happened before. But it also shows how stupid she is because it's happened before. Why did she think today was going to be different? It took this moment. Yeah. And then because, like, it's almost the end of the con, she's got to go go uh, finish it off. Um, yeah. They give Audra more to sing. They have her sing a nice reprise of Maybe and Tomorrow, which I'm all for. Victor Garber sings some songs. They, they put back some songs from the show that the original movie cut, but they cut some other stuff that the original movie cut as well. They still cut We Like to Thank You, Herbert Hoover, which is when Annie, like, visits a Hooverville. Uh which I understand. It's the only overly political song in the show and is probably the smartest lyrics Martin Charnin wrote for the show. But there are characters we never really see again. And the show kind of does away with the poor once Annie gets brought into the Warbucks mansion. Like her thoughts on, yeah. on what it is to be poor don't really, they kind of go out the window. Let's just say she adapts really easily. Yes, yes. She adapts to her surroundings very easily, which granted, you're- I think I'm going to like it here. Yeah. You're an 11 year old. It's like, yeah, I too would be like, yeah, screw my previous life. I love this. Um, Final overall thoughts on the 99 one. No, I liked it much more. I think it was actually accessible to grownups as well. Yeah. Um, It's very watchable. It's enjoyable. They're great- there's great talent on there. I mean, there's talent in the other two, but um, this yeah. just felt, you know, at once bigger and smaller. Yeah. Well, it's less dark and less weird and less sexual. Yeah. But it's a better overall product, which is why I feel like adults will like it more. Because you won't feel like your intelligence is being compromised or that you have no clue right. what you're seeing. Right. Everything makes sense. Right. What if, a question. Yes. Sort of random. Whatever happened to Annie's braids? We never did get. <laughs> You're referring to 82 Annie. Yes. yes. <laughs> Where they're like Jerry little, Curl. 
pigtail thing sticking out of her big fro. And it looks then... like a jerry curl almost. Yeah, no, she's... it looks like it had rubber bands on them or Maybe. something. Yeah, she's got her big poofy hair at the beginning of the movie. And then these two little like rat... No, what it is, it looks like she's got rat tails. Yeah. She's got her big poofy hair and these two little rat tails on the bottom. And then it goes away. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. Continuity, maybe. <laughs> Maybe I truly don't know. I don't. I, I cannot tell you what any of those decisions were in that '82 movie. I can tell you a goddamn one. There was another remake in 2014 with Quavonjane Wallace as Annie and Jamie Foxx as Warbucks, although his name was Mr. Stacks, and Cameron Diaz as Miss Hannigan. And I watched this movie a couple of years ago. This movie was very controversial because all the racists came out and said, "Why is there a black Annie?" And I say, "Deal with it." But here's the thing. It's a terrible movie. And we didn't watch it, Mama, because I was reacquainting myself with it to see if we should watch it. Mm. It's so, so, so not the show mm. to the point that I was like, there's no need to watch it. It's not, there's no reference to it. It's not an adaptation. They basically just took the basic concept of Annie, took some of the songs, sort of, and then went along with it. But even then, so like, they wrote a couple of new songs, or rather I should say, Martin and Charles did not write new songs. Sia wrote some new songs with Jay-Z. I think Jay-Z. And then they took a couple of the original songs. They took Tomorrow and Maybe, which are still mostly the same, although they get a little sort of hip-hop remix. Then they took Little Girls, and I think I'm going to like it here, in Easy Street. And they basically just took the title of the song and, like, two lines from it and then rewrote everything else. So, like, I think I'm going to like it here. She's like, I think I'm going to like it here. Yes, yes. And this is the whole new song, Little Girls. Basically, Cameron Diaz is like, little girls, little girls, everywhere I turn, I can see them. New verse of something totally different. And I'm like, <laughs> this is not the song. Plus, this movie's weirdly aware that it's a musical. So every time people break out of the song, everyone's like, why are you singing? It, it, Cameron Diaz all the time was like, when they're singing Hard Knock Life, she's like, less singing, more cleaning. And when she's doing Little Girl, she's like, I'm not singing. I'm asking you, please kill me. And I'm like, what the? Stop it. It's so embarrassed to be a musical. It's so embarrassed to be Annie. Mm. The one thing they do that I think is very smart is that the movie opens and then they're in a classroom and this little redheaded girl is giving a speech about one of the presidents. And then she goes away. And then the teacher turns to Kwanjane Wallace and goes, Annie B, you're up. And it's like, aha, that's the Annie you knew. This is the Annie of now. I like that passing of the torch. The whole movie is downhill from there. <laughs> They also, again, they move it to present day, and, or rather say to 2014, and it doesn't work because a lot of what makes Annie work is the specific time period it takes place in, 1933, not, not 2014. Mm. Um, yeah. No, it's just odd. It's odd. Um, there's one other thing I was going to say about the 2014 version I hate. I mean, essentially all of it. But they also give Hannigan the redemption, which makes no sense. Also, Jamie Foxx is running for mayor, so it's all a political ploy. Who plays Rooster in that? There is no Rooster. Bobby Cannavale plays Jamie Foxx's campaign manager, and he's, like, the evil person. But what it's supposed to be is, like, Miss Hannigan's evil, then we meet Bobby Cannavale, and he's evil, and they team up to do the whole, like, kidnapping plot with Annie and, like, finding finding someone to be her fake parents. Then Hannigan gets cold feet, tells Jamie Foxx, and then they're like, Bobby Cannavale, you're fu- you're fired. And everything's okay in the end. And it's not... Why? Why why did they torture the story that way? I don't know. I th- It's one of those things where I think a studio went, we have the rights, we have the property, let's remake it. It's a guaranteed box office thing because people know it. Let's get stars who people like. 
We're going to update it so it's a Black Annie, which is great. And Quavonjane Wallace actually has a decent singing voice. Unfortunately, they auto-tune her to High Heaven. And as we saw in Beast of the Southern Wild, Girlfriend can act. Um, but they just, everything, it, it, the idea of the project I'm not against, it's what how they did the project. And it ruins it ruins that opportunity. So I'm mad at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all we have to say about the 2014 one. Uh, looking through my notes, looking through my notes. No more. I will say they don't have Punjab and the Asp in the 2014 one. So congrats to them. Yes, there's been progress. There's been some progress. The TV version premiered to 27 million viewers and was nominated for 12 Emmys, winning two. Uh, the 82 version was nominated for two Oscars. It won neither. It was nominated for, I believe, five Razzie Awards, which are the Oscars for bad movies. They won one, which was Worst Supporting Actress for Eileen Quinn, which I think is a little cruel. I don't like awarding children Razzies. I think that's rude. They're only as good as the directors they have, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And yes, I don't love Eileen Quinn in the movie, but I think giving her a Razzie is really awful. Mm. But again, shows you where we were in 1982. Um, Final thoughts on Annie Mother. Um, Well, I'm glad to have had the trip down memory lane. It was kind of fun. Yeah. You know, it was fun watching them with you. I watch movies differently when I watch them with you. Aw. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's sort of a nice thing to do. So... You know, I don't. I don't think it was a waste of time. I'm not sure that I would run to watch them again so soon, but I enjoyed them, and I definitely enjoyed the second one, the 1991 yeah. one, much more. So you would be more likely to watch the 99 one again than yes, the 82 99, one. I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, the 99, 99 one. And yeah, we won't be watching the 99 one again anytime soon, mostly because we've got four seasons of The Americans to get through. Yes, we do. But if like, let's say in two months, I were to say. You would you want to watch that Annie again? I feel like you I would might. say yes. Well, it's entertaining. I mean, you know, the the you don't feel like uh oh, here comes a song. Yeah, it just sort of is well integrated. It's also into... a tight ninety minutes. It is, and it was. And we were we watched both of those coming off of a lot of sort of dark stuff because we have the Americans. We watched uh, Promising Young Woman, which I did love, but it is twisted. Mm-hmm. Even Bridgerton, which is like a lot of fun fluff. There's you know some tricky sexual play going on there. Correct. The only thing more horny than Bridgerton is the 1982 Annie. <laughs> it was ridiculous. So horny. So horny, baby. Um, yeah. Any- Watch the rentals of that one go up because of what you just <laughs> Just because of what I said. Everyone's going to start renting the 82 Annie on Amazon now. That's it. Hornier than Bridgerton. I got to see this. <laughs> um, oh, I did find out one of the girls. So do you remember when we were watching the 82 Annie? They were, when she comes back to the orphanage with Sandy and they're all singing like lines about what to name Sandy. And there's one girl who's like belts, like she goes, Rover, why not think it over? Some blonde girl. And you're like, she could have been Annie. <laughs> she was in the finals for it. She was, she? she was, she was, she was one of the final girls for Annie. Apparently, I guess they thought she looked a little too old or something like that. Um, and so they gave her a solo. And then that girl, Sally, that actress is uh, deceased recently, but she went on to play the lead opposite Patrick Dempsey in Can't Buy Me Love. No so she actually kind of got a big career boost post Annie instead of Eileen Quinn. It was almost startling to hear this, you know, big voice. Yeah. Come like out a, when everybody else is sort yeah, of, you know. Yeah, these whispery kids being like, Sandy or right. Ben or champion, you're anything but. And then she goes, Rover. And you're like, <laughs> and you sit there, you go, that, you go, that's a star. Yeah. And clearly Hollywood thought so because she starred in Camp Bound Me Love like five years later. So get it. Uh, oh. What's her name? I have the name. I just want to say her name to give her uh, credit. Hold on. I have it written down. I have it written down. I have it written down. Uh, Amanda Peterson. That is who it was. 
Also, apparently, Bette Midler was once offered Hannigan for the 82 one, and she turned it down. Oh, she would have been good. She would have been very good. I'm sad she didn't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I guess, in, in, in conclusion, anyone out there who scoffs at Annie, says it's treacly, that it's sweet and saccharine, it is a little bit, but it's also incredibly well made. And don't judge it based off of the 82 one. Don't even judge it based off of the 99 one, because... The stage show has a lot more grit and intelligence to it than you might let on. However, if you want a version that slaps, if you want arrangements that slap and great singing and just a tight 90 minutes of fun, get yourself Disney Plus and watch the 99 one. By the way, this episode is sponsored by Disney Plus. <laughs> you wish. <laughs> yes, I do wish. I think today we will close out with Andrea McCardle as we did not get the uh, get a chance to close out with her before and i would like to have everyone listen to her amazing star to be solo all right uh so this has been broadway breakdown thanks for coming on mama you're welcome let's maybe go have pleasure. let's maybe go have some dinner now yeah yeah I'm ready. um yeah i am too let's go watch the americans and thank you for listening guys uh, remember to rate subscribe write a review share with your friends if you like uh and we will catch you next time take us away andrea bye Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.